Well, good morning. It is, uh, it's great to see you all here. And uh, if you didn't know, like, so we're going to start this new series and we're just going to take some time and go through the book of Galatians. Um, this is one of my favorite books out of the New Testament because uh, part of it is, I just think it is so relevant to so much of what we face um, in churches today, in, in our world. And there's a lot out of this book that has shaped uh, who we are as a church that I uh, just want you to understand and see out of this. And it comes at this uh, through uh, trying to understand a particular kind of struggle that uh, we're not the first church to ever go through this or, or the first era for uh, churches to go through this kind of struggle. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. And let me illustrate the, the struggle in, in this way. So uh, when I was a little kid, um, our family had this like little mini bike and like, and it got I don't know who owned it exactly, but it got like passed around between the cousins and stuff. And it was one of these little mini bikes that, that had like a Briggs and Stratton uh, lawnmower motor in it with the, the, the little, the pull cord on it. And it had the little bitty wheels. And, and like, I, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, you'd, you'd fire it up and they're like, you know, and you'd drive around and you're like, you know, 12 to 15 miles an hour kind of a thing. And uh, my dad had this dirt bike, and uh, I would ride with him on it, and there'd be lots of times I'd sit in front of him, and uh, like he'd let me steer, and I learned how to do the gears and everything. And then this glorious day came, right, where my dad is like, I think I'm going to pass the dirt bike on to you. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to go from this little mini bike with like a lawnmower engine to a real motorcycle, right? And I was so excited about this. And... <clears throat> Uh, so he brought the motorcycle out and I was going to ride it around. And the, the one problem with it, and I was young, I was really young. Um, I was like, when I sat on the seat, my feet with my toes pointed down were probably this far from touching the ground on each side. Like I couldn't touch the, the like I couldn't just stand there on the motorcycle because it just like, go over. So my dad and I worked on this and we rolled the motorcycle over to this big boulder on the side of our driveway. And I could stand on that boulder and get on the motorcycle and, you know, and, and turn the motorcycle on, get it in gear. And then with one foot on that rock, I just let the clutch out and I just like take off. Right. So my dad like ride the motorcycle. Right. And I'm so good. I'm riding around all over the place. And my dad goes into the house or the garage or wherever he's going. I'm all excited. I'm riding around. And then I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm going to take her in now. So I go and I drive in the driveway and I'm like pulling up to like where we had this carport. And all of a sudden I'm realizing I, like, how do I stop? I'm going to stop and fall over. So it's like, and I'm like, I go around the driveway again. And I'm like, dad, dad, you know, and I'm driving around and now I'm going up and down the street and I'm like, what am I going to do? I can't get off this bike. I'm like stuck. I'm just like driving around until it's going to get dark or I run out of gas or something. And my dad never came out. And I was just like, what am I going to do? That's the struggle, right? And it's right. So there's this thing that happens that it's like, okay, there's this beautiful thing. It's like, Jesus saves us and we understand like the gospel message of, of his grace and his sanctification, like all of these things, like this is wonderful. But then it's like, okay, but now what? I think about like the early church. You know, there's, uh, I think one of the more interesting moments in the early church that I wish I knew more. It's going to be one of the things I'm going to ask God questions about when I get into heaven someday. I want like, think about after the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, 
He's back. He works with his followers and he's teaching and all this stuff. And, and now it's, it's, he's going to go now, right? In fact, I want us to look. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 1. Um, I want to read the very last words Jesus speaks um, on this earth, right? And because I think this is interesting. So here, here it is. Like he's been teaching. He's been doing all this stuff. And then we get to halfway through verse 8. It says this. Here, here's his last words. He says, and you got to picture this, right? All of his followers around. Um, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea. And you can just say, like, yeah, this thing's going to keep on going. We're, this thing's going to spread. This is awesome, right? Yeah, um, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's just like, well, this is a movement and nothing can stop it. And then verse nine, I love this. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, right? Um, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Like, he just like, and I don't know, like, I, and, and I know this, this is totally irrelevant to anything, but I've always wondered, like, you know, was he, you know, like, did he stick one, you know, like he was a superhero or something? Or did he just like, like, I don't know. Maybe you don't care. I always wonder about these things. But I think... What happened after that had to be pretty interesting too. Like, yeah. Well, there he goes. So, what do we do now? I, I mean, I know, I know we're going to the ends of the earth, but like, what do we do now, right? Like, you ever thought about like, I, like that had to be a moment, right? Because it's like, we left this whole other thing. Like Jesus revolutionized things. Like yeah, there's so much he changed. And now, here we go. And it's kind of like, I just think about riding that motorcycle and it's just like, I don't know how I'm going to stop. <laughs> but I know I will at some point. I, you know, it's just like, how does this work? And what you have to know is, there was a lot of tension over this, a lot of tension over this in the first century, because it's this, there's this whole question we go through that like, there are all these things that we understand about how we become followers of Christ. But what does it mean now to live as a follower of Christ? How, like, like, what do you do with this? And it's interesting how the early church struggled over this issue. And you see Paul addressing this issue in the book of Galatians. And, and when you first read it, it's, it, he has a lot of feeling and emotion about this because he sees a group of people that are going a particular way with how they're going to live out their faith that, that he doesn't like. He's like, like this isn't what we were called to. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Galatians chapter 1. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Um, look at verse 6. So like, here's where he begins to express the tension and the frustration over this. He says, I'm astonished. And he's going to use some, some, some language that's loaded with like emotion and intensity in this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Right? Think of this, deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are now turning to a 
different gospel, he says. He, like, he, and this is important. He takes this to this idea of the gospel. Um, he says, which really, you know, okay, I called it a different gospel, but here's the reality. The reality is, it's no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be, let, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, he's not a happy camper for this stuff. He's like, like there's intensity on this thing. And, and just like before we move on, realize this one thing, what he's getting at here. How we understand the gospel matters. It matters a lot. Because this isn't just about how do you get saved. This is about how do you live? And, and Paul is seeing something and he's bringing them back to the gospel on this issue and, and where he sees them doing something that he's like, like, this is the wrong direction. And, and maybe the way we could describe the direction that they're going, and we'll see this as we unpack the book of Galatians in the weeks uh, to come, is uh, what we might call the gospel plus. This is what he's frustrated about. It, there's this way that they take the gospel. And it's like they said, like, man, we love the gospel. We love its grace. We love its salvation. We love its forgiveness. We like, we, oh, we love all that stuff. It's just, we need to add a few things to it for how to now live. It's like, there's, we need to add something uh, to it. And this is where Paul, like his notion of that you would add something to the gospel in order to, to understand how to live, he's like, he won't have it. Like, like no, that it's, it's not. And they have tension with Paul over this because they're saying, listen, we get what you're saying about the gospel and the grace and the faith and all of those things, but that's not enough for how we now live as Christians. And so they would say, how do we live as Christians? Easy because we have this rich history of rituals and traditions and scripture and law. And by the way, it's all from God. That's how we live. If, if you could wrap up in a nutshell what the gospel plus is, I, I'd put it this way. Uh, it's like they're saying the gospel saves us and religion shows us how to live. That, that's like the gospel plus. That, that's, we'll see that unpacked more and more as we go through the book of Galatians in this. And what Paul would say is, if that's how you define the gospel, that's not really good news, right? In fact, the word gospel in Greek literally means good news. And it's like you say, no, that's not good news because that's not even a gospel at all. And uh, he mentions this in verse seven that we just read there. What he would say is, when, when you make the gospel that, a gospel plus life assumes Jesus isn't enough. That, I think, gets at the core of his problem here, right? He says, you have perverted the gospel of, and it's interesting here, he doesn't just say the gospel. He says the gospel of Christ. Because for Paul, at the center of that gospel message is the person of Christ. It is faith in Christ at the center of that. And it's important to understand the gospel has this rich, deep history 
long before Jesus was born. It's not like for the first time in the first century, they start talking about the gospel. In fact, the gospel story or the gospel promise, um, you see it in scripture. It was a part of their tradition going back centuries before Christ is there. And it is this story, it is this promise of God's redemption and life and relationship with God. He was, going to, he was going to enter this world in a new way through the Messiah, through the anointed one in this. And Paul is saying, that's Jesus. And you, you can't take Jesus out of it. You can't, uh, to say that Jesus isn't enough is to miss the core of what the gospel is about. So, when he pulls them back, he says this. It's, it's interesting where he goes with this. Look at verse 11. Because they're in this argument about like the gospel that they're preaching and, and how to do this. And he says this. He, he makes this kind of defense in verse 11. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something made, uh, not something man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, in other words, it didn't come from any of the traditions. It didn't come from any of those other things. Rather, uh, he says, he says, rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Saying is, the place to go back to, to understand the core of the gospel for how to live life, not just to find salvation, but how to live life here. We need to go back to understanding the gospel as Jesus understood it. That's where he goes. Now, what is wonderful is after Paul wrote this letter, um, there were four gospels written that actually record, that talk about the things that Jesus taught. So we actually have in the gospels where Jesus talks about uh, the gospel. And one of the clearest examples of that is found in the book of Mark. Um, and so I want, us to, I, want you, I want us to all think in this way. When it comes to the gospel and our core understanding of the gospel, I want us to ask the question, how did Jesus describe the gospel? Let's start there. That when it comes to interpreting what the gospel is, we start with Jesus and look every place else. We don't look through everything else and then go, well, what did Jesus mean? We start with Christ. And like, that's what I want to do uh, here this morning. So um, flip over to the book of Mark, Mark chapter one. And uh, we're going to look uh, at how Jesus uh, describes this. Mark chapter uh, one. Uh, and here's uh, verse 14 is where it sets it up here. It says, uh, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, and here it is, proclaiming the good news of God or the gospel, same word. Um, and so uh, verse 15 now is where he actually walks through. This is where we're going to see in a second where Jesus says, here's the gospel that he preached in this. Now, I want to say this though. Um, I'm going to read it here in a second. And you might go, oh, Okay, I mean, it's not like I disagree with it. It's from Jesus. But you might find yourself going, it's not like, wow, unbelievable. Like, and, and part of that is uh, because it's easy to lose how profound it is. There's so, and and I, can, can I tell you, for years, like I read it and believed it and thought it was good, but it, it didn't like light me up. And an interesting thing happened. Early on in my studies, when I was in college and I was a Greek major, 
and I had a class, uh, it was my first class studying Greek on the New Testament specifically, and the first book they had us translate was the book of Mark. And I remember translating the book of Mark, and it's a struggle, right? You go through it, and you're just like, oh my gosh, okay, do I, this word, that word, like how's this word? And, you, and you're just, you're wrestling with every single sentence, and you go through this thing. And I got to this, and I'm kind of wrestling through it and trying to figure it out. And as I wrestled through verse 15 here, it was like something beautiful happened in the wrestling of it. I saw what Jesus was saying with like fresh eyes and there was something about it that just lit me up. I was just like, how have I missed this for so, like it was this beautiful experience, right? So here's what I wanna do for the rest of my time. I wanna take this and together, I, I wanna take you back and we're going to translate Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, out of the Greek, into English. And I want us to all just think about it and wrestle with it together. And you may be going, oh man, this, how, like, like where's an exit door right now? Don't go anywhere, right? Because my goal is to make this fun and exciting for you. Right? I want you to come out of this and go, wow, I, I learned a little Greek today, right? So that never again will you make the comment, well, that's Greek to me. You actually go, well, I kind of know a little Greek now. I just, okay. I, and what I hope, right? I want you to stick with this because I think as you wrestle with it and you think about it, all of a sudden you'll be like, oh my gosh, like there's, there's something rich. There's something deep in that. And that you will come to see that like the gospel, right? This idea that, well, the gospel saves us, but there's this religious thing that we need for how we live life. I want you to go, oh my gosh, no, the gospel, that's amazing. This, this is where it's like, it's in this that there is life now. That's what I want for you. So we're gonna, we're gonna go through this verse, right? Okay, um, are you excited Oh, good. Yes, that's awesome. You're so kind. You've got me more excited now. Okay, so uh, we're going to go through this. I'm going to break it up into th just um, three phrases. And we're going to look at each phrase just uh, individually and translate just a couple of words out of each phrase and as we start to kind of put this together. So first phrase, first phrase here is, oh, let me read the passage to you. <laughs> that's just like how you start off when you translate something is you got to read it first, right? Um, so uh, Mark 1, verse 15, Here, here's what it says. It says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. That's it. That, that is how Jesus, right? It says, this is, this is the good news that he went out and proclaimed. That's it, right? And, and again, it's not like, like, well, oh, but it's not like, oh my goodness, right? It's like, oh, but let's unpack this. And I think you'll walk out of here seeing it and experiencing it a little differently. Okay, so first phrase, first phrase. The time has come, he said. The time has come. So um, in Greek, there are a couple of different words that we could easily translate into the English, the word time. Uh, one of those is the word chronos. Uh, we get the English word chronological from that, right? That makes sense. And chronos is a more precise kind of measurement of time. If I were to say, what, what is the time right now? What, what time of day is it? Um, I would probably say, what 
what chronos is it? I would use this word because this is where you'd look at your watch or you'd look up at the sun and, and, and you're, you're determining something a little bit more precise. Now, what's interesting is that's not the word that Mark chooses to use here to capture what Jesus was teaching about the gospel, about the good news. Instead, he uses another Greek word, um, kairos, kairos. And kairos is, it also means time, but it, it means like a body of time or a container of time, like a season. So, uh, like, so if I ask you what time of day is it, you're more likely to use the term chronos. But if I were to ask you what time of the year is it, you'd use kairos, because that's more like a season. So if I say like, you know, what to, what, what's the season? What, what season are we in right now? Summer, because it's like we're summer, and then we sort of get like a weird spring around December, and then we're in summer for the rest of the year here in Tucson, right? It's kind of, right? Um, um, if I were to say, what is your favorite uh, time of the year? Uh, in Greek, I, I'd be asking kairos, not chronos. So if I were to say, so like, so like what's your, what's your What's your favorite kairos of the year? What is it? Christmas, yeah. Um, that's very good. Uh, uh, or if I were to say what season is it, right? What would it be? Like Christmas season or the best answer is actually deer. Deer season is the best. <laughs> I know, I'm not trying to create more controversy, but you know, elk would also be an appropriate answer at this point, but I... I'm off track here. Let me, let me come back, right? Okay. Um, uh, now, here's the other thing, though, that is so important about this word. It's not just as simple as the difference between a precise time and like a season of time. So like in the New Testament, uh, kairos is used like for harvest time, right? It's harvest kairos because, here's, and this is really important, because it's about the opportunity within uh, th that season of time. It's not just a label. It, it is, what is the opportunity? And if it is harvest season, this is your opportunity to harvest. This is important. Because if you miss that, then like the crops go bad. If it's planting season, right? If, it, if this is planting kairos, like you need to plant. Now, this is your opportunity in this. Uh, the other thing that is, is interesting is this is a very old, old, this is one of the older words in, in uh, Greece. I mean, we're, we're going back like more than 3,000 years ago is when this word comes on uh, the scene. Um, it's used in uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Remember like the, the old Greek stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey? There's uh, one scene in particular in the Iliad where uh, the Trojans and the Greeks are in this, you know, mortal combat. And one of the Trojan heroes, a guy by the name of Hector, uh, he's fighting it out, but he's in real trouble because there's this Greek archer that is zeroing in on Hector and he's firing these arrows and they're getting closer and they're getting closer. And it's not long before he's gonna, he's, he's going to zero in and he's going to kill Hector. The problem is this particular archer has all of this armor, like he is protected. And all Hector has at this moment is this little jagged rock and he's at a distance. And this guy's got this, and it's like, it seems like everything's bad. And then in the Greek, it has, it, it has this thing where he draws back his bow, and we're back to deer season just a little bit, but draws back his bow. And what it says is, is he arches his, his shoulder blades together. He actually opens up a gap in his armor, and that becomes the kairos 
for Hector. It is this moment of opportunity when it seems like there's no hope. All of a sudden, Hector with his little rock sees the opening. Um, and the text says at that kairos, that moment, that time, right? At that kairos, Hector throws this little rock and kills the archer. And so when you understand this word, it is about the opportunity. What is, what is the thing that wasn't there that is now there, right? Um, uh, and, and you may experience it in a season, but it's all about the opportunity. So when you think about this word that is used, like ask yourself, how would you translate? Would you still translate it so the time has come? Or would you say the season has come? Or would you say a season of opportunity uh, has come? Like, like, what is that in this that, uh, that we're looking at? And uh, if, if I were to translate this in this moment, maybe the way I would put it is um, the opportune season right? The opportune season is maybe the way I would translate. But there's this other word. I want to look at one other word in this phrase, and it's um, has come, has come. And it's the Greek word uh, playro. And it means to arrive or to come, but it carries this other notion uh, to it that is because, because it is uh, there, there's this sense of fulfillment or there's this sense of fullness that comes into it. And it's playro. And so if we were to like think about these two words with the rest of this sentence that where it just says, and he said this, um, maybe we would translate it this way. The opportune season is now fully present. It's here. It's present. Okay. Now let's go to the next phrase, right? Let's go to the next phrase. And I want to look at a couple of words in this next phrase. So the next phrase in what he says is, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. When we think about kingdom of God, oftentimes it's like, like now we're back to knights and castles and weird stuff that doesn't seem relevant, right? But understand this is, this is very precise language that's being used in the New Testament. The other phrase that means uh, something almost identical that gets uh, used is the kingdom of heaven. And the idea behind this is just like when you think about a king and they would have their kingdom, every, like the people that get to be in that kingdom, they're under that king. They have connection to that, that king. They're, they're in his sphere of relationship and influence. Under his kingdom, it, his sway rules. One way to think of it is to be in God's kingdom is where his sway and his way is the way. Another way, probably the way we talk about it the most around here is the kingdom of God is to have life and relationship with God. Life and relationship with God. That's the kingdom of God. Now, add to that this next little uh, Greek word in this phrase uh, where it says is near. Um, uh, it's the Greek word angizo. And angizo, the root of angizo simply means near. But as that root got developed from the root into angizo, it picked up the idea, not just that something was next to something or near, but the nearness created accessibility. The nearness creates accessibility. So some of you, maybe in your Bibles, this gets translated the kingdom of God, right? Life and relationship with God is at hand because it's being made available. It's come near, but it's, it, so like, what if you, like, maybe you've got some 
good friends or family members and they've got some tickets to your favorite sporting event or a concert or something. And they come over and they go, I've got these tickets here. And then they go, would you like them, right? That's in Giza. It's like they're bringing it near, but they're making it available. It's now available. Now, we might go, okay, but don't, like the preciseness of what's happening here is so important because the other thing in translating is understanding the context. This is being written, written in a context that this simple phrase, life and relationship with God, ergizo, or angizo is being made available. This goes against everything every world religion at this time would have known or understood. This is a time of ziggurats and pyramids and temples, right? Where God is away. Like you, like you have to work to get to God. You have to go through priests and you have to do rituals and you all this stuff and God's on the other side. Even in Judaism, uh, this was true, right? They had the temple and there would be the outer courts and, and most people could go into the outer courts. And then as you got into the inner courts, fewer and fewer people were allowed to get to it until finally you got to like what was known as the holy place. And that was like only a few priests got to go in there. But the holy place, right? At the end of the holy place was this huge, huge curtain that divided it from the other side, which was the holy of holies, where God was. And only the high priest got to go in there like once a year. God wasn't available. And God sure wasn't being made available in how they understood, like you worked, you strived, you did all this stuff. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this context, Jesus is saying, life and relationship with God and Gizo, it's like moving towards you and it's, it's as is available to you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You just accept it. It's, it's, it's being given to you. It's near, just take it. Like that's, revo- do you understand how revolutionary those two, these few words are when it comes to the notion of spiritual things in this? See? So um, let, let's like pull this back together and, and think about how we would translate these first two phrases. So that first phrase, right? We might uh, translate the opportune season is now fully present. And what is that season? What is that opportunity? What is present in this moment in fullness? That life and relationship with God is now available. That just wasn't said in this world. That's just, that, that goes against everything that religion, like that's just like you're giving it away. Like you just say, and yet Jesus, this is what he's proclaiming. This is the good news, right? So, Last phrase, last phrase here. Um, And this is my favorite phrase in this, right? Uh, It's this, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I want to look at this word repent because in many ways, I think this is maybe one of the most misunderstood words in the English language uh, that we have from the Bible. 
Like, it, we just miss it. And, and part of it is because we have this, think about what we think about with repent. When we think about repent, we have this notion of change, which is very much a part of, of this word. And the Greek word is metanuete. Metanuete is the Greek word here. And, but when we think of repent, we think of repent in the sense of, like what I've failed at, my shame, my regret. We put all this emotion to it. And it's out of that sense of shame or regret that I will change my ways. I'm driven to change out of the realization of just like, oh my gosh, like the, the, there's something scary, there's something bad. And the motive for change, right, comes out of that. But that, friends, is not what metanuete is at all. Right? In fact, that notion of repent, that doesn't fit what's come before it, right? Like, so when you're translating, you're, you're, you're looking for, for like flow of thought and what is happening. We have this flow of thought that's coming towards this moment of repent and believe the good news. And this flow of thought is the, the opportunity that you've needed, what you've waited for, your season, that moment, it, it's here. It is in its fullness. It is a season about God, the God you could never reach on your own, you, you could never gain on He has made his way available to you. Like, this is really good, right? And it's just, right? it'd be like waking up Christmas morning and saying to your kids, okay, the season is here. It's the Kairos. It is time to open presents. Okay, now you terrible, lousy, sinner kids, I guess you're allowed to open the presents. You're like, what are you? They'd be like, dad, what's going on? It just, it'd be this, it doesn't work together, right? That's, but we carry that notion. I want you to understand this word. I want you to understand both of these. So metanuete comes from two Greek words, okay? Uh, uh, the second half, nuete, uh, the root of this is nous, and it simply means mind or intellect. See, this is a thinking kind of word. It's not a feeling kind of word. Like, oh, I've got all this. I just feel so guilty. And so I'm going to change because I feel so guilty. It's a thinking kind of word. In fact, when Jesus is teaching about the great commandment and he says, Lord, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, this is the word he uses, this form of nous, your mind. So you take nuete or nous, and you put the prefix meta, and in Greek, this prefix literally means change. So a literal translation of this word is um, to change by way of your mind or to change your mind. Um, and, and not just the idea, I'm, just, I'm changing my mind right now. It, it holds this, this sense of because your intellect, the whole system by which you would base your life on, how you would think about how the world works and how, what, what, what are the drivers behind all of your decisions, what this is saying is, I'm changing that. It's a deep kind of change. In fact, a really good English word that, that captures this idea of nuete uh, here is like paradigm. What's your paradigm for life? And what he's saying is, Change your paradigm for life. Uh, probably my favorite translation of this little phrase here uh, comes from a guy by the name of Dallas Willard, uh, uh, one of the most remarkable theologians of our time. Passed away not too long ago. But here's what Dallas, how Dallas Willard uh, translated this one little phrase. Change what you base your life on. He says that's what Jesus is getting at. When he says metanuete, change what you base your life on. And... 
And then we have this word uh, believe, believe in the English translation. And it's uh, pisteo, pisteo is the, is the word here. And it comes from, it, it shares this root with, uh, with another uh, word uh, in uh, Greek. And they're, they're very closely related. And the, the, the deep meaning behind them is this idea of trusting. Um, is trusting. In fact, uh, the only difference between these two Greek words is one is in the verb form and one is in the noun form. Otherwise, they're the same word. And the, the Greek word in the noun form is pistis, which is the word faith. So whenever you see in your Bible the word believe, almost every time it is, it is the same word as faith, only in verb form. It is, it is when you act in faith, when your action is a faith, trusting action. It is about trust. And the reason this is important is because as uh, English has evolved from like those earliest translations of the English Bible where they use the word believe, believe has come to mean something of a more like intellectual assent to us. In other words, we think of believe most often as it's what I think to be true. We don't naturally go to the place believe means trusting. But that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying trust it. Trust it. In other words, and think of how these two words work together. Change what you base your life on and trust it. But what does he say about, what, like, what are we changing? What are we basing our life on? What he said before this, what he's saying is, I want you to base your life on the fact that, that this, is, this, is, this is the season of your great opportunity. This is the thing that you've needed. And this opportunity, you know what this opportunity is? That Jesus has come into this world, which means that life and relationship is accessible to you with God. Like God has, he's made himself accessible to you. You get to live out of his insight. You get to live out of his grace, his strength. Like this is, see, this is not just about salvation. Like what do I need to do to get to heaven? This is about, I'm getting to live in a whole new way. Metanuete, it's like, there's that old way. That's the law. That's the temple. It's all of that. And he's saying, change your paradigm. Get away from that paradigm. Base your paradigm on that God has made his way to you. Now step out and trust it. That's what he's getting. So if we were to wrap this whole thing up um, and, and translate this one verse, okay? Here, here's, here's how we could say this uh, here. Um, it would be this. The opportune season is now fully present, he said. Life and relationship with God is available. Base your life on the good news and trust it. That's what he's saying, right? And we have this beautiful picture. Remember when Jesus, um, uh, at his death, remember what happens in the temple, right? There's the temple and there's that curtain dividing the holy place from the holy of holies where God is inaccessible on the other side. And what does God do on that day that Jesus died? He rips the curtain from the top to the bottom. Like, like God is open for business. God has made his way out of whatever you, wherever you thought he was. And he is ergizo. He has made himself available to you. And if that is true, if that is true, don't base your life 
on all that other stuff, reorganize your whole life. Rethink the way you get up in the morning. Rethink the way you pray. Rethink the way you make decisions. Rethink everything in your life as if this is true, that God would abide with you and your heart. You base your life as if that is reality. And then you trust it. You walk that life. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you've missed that gospel. The second you say, I need this over here. Okay, you know, I got the gospel. That saves me. But I need to go get some of this other stuff. It's like you're saying, we're going to go sew the, the temple curtain back up or something. It's like you're saying, I don't need Jesus. It's like, it's no. The gospel, I think what Paul would say is the gospel that saved you. is the gospel to live by. Do you see how powerful that is? When you understand how Jesus understood the gospel, you don't want anything else. The gospel is what I need for life. It's the thing that, now, it doesn't mean that it's always easy. In fact, I'll argue sometimes, I think it's harder. It takes way more faith than the law. It takes wrestling. And it takes, like, it just, but it's so beautiful, isn't it? See? And so why is Paul so upset? He's upset because they're, they're making the gospel something that's lost its beauty. He says these words. I want to just close with these words. He says these words at the end of uh, chapter 2 here. <clears throat> and, and maybe as you think about how Jesus taught the gospel, think about what Paul is saying with this. He ends chapter 2 with this. He says, the life I live in the body. In other words... Not someday in heaven. This isn't about some. This is how I live today and tomorrow and the next day, right? The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not by law, not by works, not by trying to measure up. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could have been gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And he's saying, that's what you're acting like. So I hope, friends, that as we go through the book of Galatians, what we find is how to live life out of the gospel, out of relationship with Christ, where he is all we need. That's the message. Why don't you stand? I'm going to close it. Well, not a better way to end a sermon, right? should just stop right there. Let me pray. And let me just say this too. If you're a guest here this morning, it is so good having you here. And I hope, I hope this is a great morning for you. I'm going to be mingling around in here and stuff. I'd love to meet you, shake your hand uh, here. But let's pray and, and, and we'll go. Father, I just thank you so much for your gospel. I thank you so much for the most amazing opportunity that it ushered in, in the fullness that we needed into this world that is your son, Jesus Christ. May we be a Christ-centered church living out of the power of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Have a great morning and we'll see you next week.